and even World Trade Organization rules are unattractive. So what hard Brexit means is you fall back on World Trade Organization rules. Now, we're, we're, we're members of the WTO, OK? We must carefully distinguish here between being a member of the WTO, which we will be, and having a preferential free trade agreement of the sort we would have with the EU um, after, say, 2021 or at, at some future point, or the one we've already got by virtue of being inside the EU. Under WTO laws... Um, you may have a preferential trade agreement, you may have a special trade deal with some some countries, and then trade on a different basis with, with others. But otherwise, WTO law says you must treat every country the same way. That's the most favoured nation rule within WTO law. Now, going forward, if we were to have a hard Brexit, what does that mean in practice? It would mean that we're no longer in the EU, we're under WTO rules, but we have, we have no preferential trade agreements with, with any parties. The EU will then say to us, um, the EU's common external tariff will now apply to EU-UK trade. And that means tariffs on EU-UK goods movements of around 10%, for example, for motor vehicles and up to 40% for some agricultural goods. So goods coming... And in, a falling pound. Of course, a falling pound offsets some of these tariffs. So what this means is food imported into the UK from mainland Europe, from the EU, there'll be tariffs of up to 40% in some cases, so that will probably feed through into food prices. But equally, UK farmers exporting to mainland Europe will face very high tariffs on the goods they try to sell on the mainland. Right. Same for cars, maybe 10% in, in some cases, not 40%. Now, the point about the falling pound is it offsets the effects of tariffs, but not uniform. Well, it does so uniformly. Okay, so the falling pound affects every sector, but tariffs affect sectors differentially. So there's a differential hit. A sector like agriculture is much more severely hit than some other sectors because of the very high tariffs implied in EU-UK trade. It doesn't end there because the UK will find itself de facto required to set a tariff for its dealings with third countries if there's a hard Brexit. And in practice, it's likely to end up adopting the same external tariff the EU currently has with the rest of the world. That's what we really have at the moment, except for those countries with which we have FTAs. So after Brexit Day on March 2019, if there's a hard Brexit, these tariffs will apply to the UK's dealings in effect with the whole world. Are you surprised, just a personal opinion now rather than a legal one, that people didn't consider the impact of the tariffs during the Brexit debate or the Northern Ireland border? I think I should also say that it is possible to reduce tariffs to zero and, and act consistently with WTO rules. And some people on the Leave side in, in the referendum campaign, like Professor Patrick Minford of Economists for Brexit, and more recently the Institute for Free Trade that was set up after the referendum vote, and of which Daniel Hannan, the MEP, is a president. This body of, of thought argues, let's reduce tariffs to zero. So there is an answer in a way. They, they did absolutely think about the tariffs problem. And they also predicted that the falling pound would, would help. And they were right about that. But completely abolishing tariffs, removing all tariffs on imported goods. We can do that under the hard Brexit option. However, no other country will reciprocate because if they reduce their tariffs to zero when they're dealing with us, they must do that for all other countries in the WTO. That's the most favoured nation clause. Now, also, other countries with preferential free trade agreements, and there are many of them, 
cannot, again, simply reduce tariffs to zero without reaching those agreements. So we can reduce our tariffs to zero. That's Professor Patrick Minford's argument. But he calls it unilateral free trade because he recognises that very few, almost no other country would reciprocate, Okay, at least in the short run. Now, the effect of that would be our own producers, our own manufacturers, our own farmers will then be subject to low-cost competition from every country in the world. But those countries and it could mean any country, will not reciprocate, will not, will not give us access to their markets. So it's highly asymmetric free trade. Probably this would lead to a very uh, severe shock for our manufacturing and agricultural sectors. Professor Minford and others say this competitive shock is good for our economy, will force us to become more efficient and more competitive. And there's an argument for that, but this would not be an immediate effect. I think it would, in the short run, be a kind of shock therapy for the economy. And it would be extremely difficult, I think, for the economy and for the country for several years to go through this extreme transition that that Professor Minford and others have been arguing for. And it's not UK government policy to do this. And it's easy to see why. I think it would be very difficult indeed for uh, any political party in the UK to make this part of its programme going forward for Brexit. Because it would, in the short run, lead, I think, to very large job losses in in manufacturing and agriculture. And it's a time at which... Several commentators and economists within the UK economy are concerned about production. They've been concerned for many years now. And also about growth rates. Philip Hammond, the Chancellor, in his budget, downgraded growth rates to under 2%, 1.5%, 1.5% for the uh, near future over the next five years. Again, that doesn't bode well for the British economy. Do you think perhaps the fear of low growth led to this deal being signed in the way it was signed? It was a surprise deal and it is leading commentators to call it the softest of softest Brexits. I I don't think doing this deal helps growth. I I think it was um, a way out of 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 a real fix the government was in. It had to deal with the three issues that the EU put on the table for the withdrawal agreement. It had to somehow resolve the Irish border question, or else it simply couldn't move on. The government, I think, rationally balked at the notion of a hard Brexit. Um, again, we, we've talked about tariffs, but there were other problems, simply not having the customs infrastructure in place by March 2019. There's almost no way we could build the physical border posts required. Also, cooperation with the EU on things like transport, on food security, on other aspects of national security. These cooperation agreements would fall away with potentially very serious consequences, which actually really could have included grounded planes and food shortages. So in the short run, they they really had to do this deal, I think. Maintaining business confidence is much more difficult. I think growth does depend to a large extent on confidence and on the willingness of investors to invest in the UK and on the willingness of firms to stay here and not move operations to mainland Europe. The real problem going forward is uncertainty about the UK position. The government, I think, could say right now we're committed to the single market and the customs union or a single market and a customs union going forward into the indeterminate future. If they said that clearly, I think actually business would would be assisted by that and it would help the economy and help restore confidence in the economy. The government hasn't quite said that. It's signalling lots of different things, uh, no doubt for reasons uh, to do with uh, political dynamics. It's not as clear as it could be. But I think if my argument's correct, it really wouldn't cost anything anything now for the government to say, here's where we stand. That would really help growth. And regarding the Irish border question, your views on that? During the referendum campaign, politicians, uh, John Major, Tony Blair, Irish politicians, 
all made the point that if we had Brexit, the Irish border would come up as an issue. So I don't think we should be surprised that it has come up, nor should we be surprised that the Irish government very strongly pressed for no hard border between the Republic and Northern Ireland. This is not in the least surprising, nor is it surprising that the UK government rightly thought that this too was an issue for reasons of security and reasons of national policy. We don't want to see a return to a hard border between North and South. Nobody really wants that. So it's not at all surprising. Of course, there really is no obvious solution to this. You can't have your cake and eat it over the Irish border. If we are to avoid border posts and customs controls, then we have to accept alignment of the rules in Northern Ireland with the, uh, with the rules of those applying in the EU, which apply in the South. Then, of course, the DUP and other Irish politicians, they rightly say, are you really suggesting that there should be no longer a UK internal market, that there should be different commercial rules, there are already different rules on some other matters, but different commercial rules applying to Northern Ireland uh, and to the rest of the UK? Of course not. So having conceded alignment between North and South in Ireland, the UK was more or less bound, I think, practically to concede alignment between Northern Ireland, the whole of Ireland, and Great Britain. That was almost inevitable. We see this in the critical paragraph 49 and paragraph 50 of the joint report agreed at the end of the process of negotiation in phase one. Alignment between the two sides of the Irish border, article paragraph 49. Alignment between Northern Ireland and the UK, paragraph 50. Except, interestingly, in a situation where the Northern Ireland Assembly doesn't want Alignment. That's a very significant and interesting inclusion. But we must imagine for the time being, uh, the DUP, anyway, would certainly insist on no border in the Irish Sea. But the reality is that Brexit cannot be delivered on the terms promised at the time of the June 2016 referendum. Is that right? That's right, because in, uh, in the referendum, what, what later became known as the have cake and eat it position was, was effectively put forward, that you, you could leave the EU, there would be money to spend on the National Health Service, and we could have complete free trade with Europe. Leave campaigners talked about a great big European internal market. They talked about WTO law without, I think, carefully distinguishing between these two different things, the single market and WTO law, or between having a preferential trade agreement and falling back on WTO law. I think that the have-cake-eat-it option was never never realistic, could never be delivered, and that has now become, I think, after the events of, of the 8th of December 2017, after those rather dramatic early morning events, I think that's now become absolutely crystal clear. We can't have our cake and eat it. And do you think going into 2018, then, that the only Brexit available now is really a formal one? I think that we're looking at a symbolic Brexit. We will have left by March 2019. Of course, it's not. It's symbolic in, in its effects on trade and regulation. It's not symbolic for EU citizens in the UK who will not have the security and certainty uh, they, they previously had. OK, if we're still in the single market after 2019, they will be protected to some degree. But they know now that at some point the UK will withdraw even, even from that transitional phase. There'll be a deep and comprehensive free trade agreement which won't guarantee their rights in the same way that EU membership does. EU membership locks their rights in 
uh, that simply won't be the case going forward. So there, there are very real negative consequences for EU citizens in the in the UK and for UK citizens in mainland Europe. It's a catastrophe because they will lose the right of free movement. In all the discussion at the end of December, there was almost no mention of the rights of UK citizens living in mainland Europe. That's highly regrettable. So the interests of individuals, of families, have been very largely sacrificed for the symbolism of, of, of Brexit. In terms of regulation, in terms of, of, of trade, though, yes, it's a purely symbolic Brexit that we're now looking at. But it's not cost-free. It's absolutely not cost-free. It's not cost-free for families and indiv- individuals who lose rights. It's not cost-free for business, because even this symbolic Brexit doesn't provide the cast-iron guarantee of the single market going forward indefinitely that we previously had. There will be political turbulence and uncertainty. I have no doubt at all during 2018 we will continue to hear nothing is agreed until everything is agreed. We will continue to hear this isn't legally binding. There will continue to be calls for a hard Brexit. If my argument's correct, we're on a pathway to a very, very soft Brexit, a formal Brexit. But because of the political turbulence, I think companies will continue to disinvest Uh, They will continue to set up operations on mainland Europe. There'll be a movement of financial sector firms out of London, and it won't be a purely formal movement. They really will move staff and not just headquarters to Frankfurt, Dublin and Paris and other cities. There's already a movement of agencies out of London. These are real effects. These are negative effects, and they they have consequences for the economy as well as for families, individuals, companies and others. And finally... There aren't really clear gains to be seen, even by a soft Brexit, because we'll be the rule taker. We won't be able to sail off wherever we want to go and do trade without rules. We have the issue of tariffs and borders too. Any gains, Simon? It's hard to know what what the gains are supposed to be from Brexit, but this was obvious all along. When the referendum discussions began, before that, it was clear that our options were strictly limited. If we left the EU but stayed within the EEA, the European Economic Area, the single market, we would be bound by the same rules but not be able to influence them. This point was made years ago when discussions of, of this sort of thing first began. The point was reiterated. Um, during the referendum campaign, what are we really going to get out of this? Can we dissociate ourselves so completely from these rules and regulations and economic relationships which have built up over 40 years and which we, the UK, actually very much helped to shape? The single market was something we shaped which reflected our interests along with, it is true, the interests of other member states. We made the single market what it is. We leave the single market but are bound by single market rules We no longer influence it. We are in a position of being a rule taker in a much more extreme sense than we were before. Have we got more global trade? No, because we lose the 50 or so trade agreements with third countries we already have by virtue of EU membership. They will have to be painstakingly recreated over a long period of time. I'm afraid they will not be rolled over. They will not be grandfathered in. So we have actually less trade for the foreseeable future. We are a rule taker to a much greater extent than we were before. These were, I take it, the objectives of the Leave campaign. 
they will not be realised. Will there be less free movement of labour? Eventually, yes. Once there's a free trade agreement, there will no longer be a requirement for free movement of labour. But as long as a transitional phase is going on, and I think it'll be more than two years, there will be the same rules on free movement of labour as there currently are. That won't change either. So I would find it difficult, if I were undertaking an assessment of this in terms of costs and benefits, to point to very clear benefits, whereas I think it's obvious what the costs are. Simon Deacon, Director of the Centre for Business Research, Professor of Law at the University of Cambridge, thank you very much indeed for talking to the CBR podcast series at the beginning of 2018. Thank you. Thank you, Bonnie.